in the spirit of spinning yarns, acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first Australians and recognises their culture, history and their deep connection to the land, water, seas and communities. This episode is recorded on the lands of Turbul and Jagra people of the Mianan Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Eventually they rang the police and juvenile aid, the new juvenile aid bureau, which were social workers, who came and convinced my parents to sign me away and put me in the youth prison. So I was put in the youth prison for wagging school when I was 13. I remember the cops coming up the back stairs of the house um, to say that I had to go with them. And that day I was dressed to go to school. Life, you know. Hello, I'm Akash Kamola and welcome to a brand new episode of In the Spirit of Spinning Yarns, an Australian podcast of stories that matter to us as new age Australians. This year has been a testament to each one of us. Australia, our golden country, has been through adversity more than ever. Starting with bushfires, our golden country went through enormous resilience. With the scars barely healed, we had the COVID-19 outbreak, which remains a global pandemic. Many of us have been forced to dig deep to find the grit. We have been faced by adversities. Amid all this are also stories of courage and fortitude, of human spirit that we remain grateful for. My guest today is a woman whose spirit is fearless, a woman of steel with a heart larger than anyone. She knows all about tackling adversity and resilience. At a tender age of 13, she was sent to jail. Her experience as a child in prison, jailed for drug trafficking and then as a witness to a murder, to being awarded the Order of Australia Medal and now running her big mission to free women in prison is admirable. Her internationally recognized Sisters Inside movement is on the go. Before we go any further, Debbie is here. On a midsummer afternoon, I'm right here at the Sisters Inside office at the Montague Road, West End in Brisbane, with the legendary Debbie Kilroy OAM. Let's take a listen to her in her own words, what her journey from a young Debbie to Debbie Kilroy OAM has been. All right, so I'm Debbie Kilroy and I was born here in, in Mianjin, otherwise known by white people as Brisbane, on the north side and uh, my parents were poor, working class and I was raised there and I had one younger brother. I went to the local Catholic school up the road, so we used to walk to school there. I found school, um, primary school was okay, I found the nuns difficult. You know, they would give us a strap all the time. I remember once climbing in the tree in the play yard and I got six of the best for climbing the tree. And I was arcing up and challenging the nuns because I was cranky at them about getting the strap six times when boys were allowed to climb the tree. And their response was that boys were allowed to do that, but girls weren't. And so I was one of those children that just kept pushing and asking why, why, why and drove all the adults mad. I convinced my parents at the end of primary school to go to the local state school, not to continue across to Mount Alvernia, the private girls' school at the back of my 
primary school and because I was young I started school when I was I'd just turned five years old where other kids were five turning six so I was always that year younger and when I went to high school the teachers just didn't engage me my mind really so I was fidgety all the time and and then I learnt new things you know met new friends who had different walks of life and so you know and because school didn't engage me so I'd take off from school we'd wag school truant from school and go into the valley I'd end up having my own desk outside the principal's office eventually they rang the police and juvenile aid the new juvenile aid bureau which were social workers who came and convinced my parents to sign me away and put me in the youth prison so I was put in the youth prison for wagging school when I was 13 I remember the cops coming up the back stairs of the house um, to say that I had to go with them and that day I was dressed to go to school and you know adults didn't make much sense because one minute they're telling me to go to school and the day I'm going to school they're telling me I'm not allowed to go to school I had to go with them and to go with them meant to get locked up and so I was locked up for four weeks to be assessed and my mum still says today that um, she'd never received that assessment but that was probably being in that youth prison was the first time really that I'd experienced any violence because there was no violence at home I came from a family you know I was quite lucky not like other girls and women who I'd been in prisons with that grew up in violent homes I didn't grow up in a violent home but I learned about violence very quickly in the youth prison and so then I wasn't allowed when I was released I wasn't allowed to go back to home the the authorities deemed it not appropriate to go to home even though there was no issue at home other than parents being poor so I used to just take off from you know the halfway house sort of thing and run with other girls and so then I was in and out of that youth prison till I was 17 and then in the adult prison system at 17 and then through life uh, then I was looking at a mandatory life sentence in 1988 and when I fronted court in October 89 for a trial the prosecutors dropped the one of the the drug trafficking charges that actually penalty was life imprisonment so then a deal was done I pled guilty and I was sentenced to six years imprisonment so that was the last time I went into prison at that at that time so that was October the 26th 1989 so it's um, 31 years anyway so I was in prison again and so but you know I knew most of the women in there because we'd all been in the youth prison together so it was no big deal life you know same same really what dished what it dished out for us girls who were criminalized in prison so but in January that year in 1990 my friend was stabbed to death and I was stabbed twice trying to stop her murder and that shifted many things for me in many different ways so on my release on parole I said to the women that I would come back and I did come back and I was allowed back because the general manager allowed me to come back and um, that's when we started Sisters Inside and so Sisters Inside is very much a grassroots organisation that was started by us in prison and still today there's women in prison that are on our management committee. This organisation is very much driven by criminalised and imprisoned women and it will be as long as I'm here as a CEO. It's also in our constitution so it's actually a legal part of the constitution that that must happen. So very much grassroots where staff don't direct what happens here, the women direct what happens here and because of the model of service that we have, the framework that we work, which is a prison abolitionist framework, you know, it works to walk alongside women that we come from a position of power with not power over. I suppose the best way to describe Sisters Inside now is there's four arms. So one is service provision and programs, one arm. Another arm is law reform and advocacy. And then there's community training and education. And also then there's a law firm. So after my release from prison, well, when I was in prison, I started a bachelor of social work at UQ. And then I, went, I finished that. And when I was released, I started uh, my law degree and got admitted in 2007. So the fourth arm of the organization is my law firm. It sits in the office. It's a separate entity 
but it needs to be separate legally it can't be the same but I mean it goes hand in hand with the work that we do so here we are today with the organization that it is we have this office here we have an office in North Queensland because there's a women's prisons in North Queensland so Sisters Inside is uh, we work to abolish the prison industrial complex and all everything we do comes from a position of decarceration We're now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe and stay tuned for more yarns. As always, Debbie, I'm really moved and empowered by your journey. What was that like when you were 13? What was that feeling, the emotion when the police came to get you and then your continued journey till you were an adult? an 18-year-old girl to also dealing with a life in prison where you saw violence having not come from a violent home suddenly in an area where there was so much trauma so much violence people you love people you care getting into it what was all that about well as a 13-year-old you know the police coming up the back stairs to take me to the youth prison in my school uniform i was actually like I wouldn't say shocked. I was like more taken back thinking, um, oh yeah, this would be typical of adults, have no idea what they're talking about. They say one thing and do another and they really don't know, they haven't got a clue what they're doing. They're, you know, useless, hopeless, relying on police, you know, coming from that position of power over to, you know, lock a child up. So I was pissed off but thought, oh well, up you anyway, fine, let's go, let's do this. So... I fought I always fought back no matter what any adult did or said I you know that was inconsistent I would always challenge them that I would always take them on I wasn't the child that sat in the fetal position in the corner I would actually fight back and sometimes fight back quite violently so that's what they did so I learned that very quickly and one of the things that they gave me was they kept telling me how bad I was so when you tell a child how bad they are they'll start acting that out so you could you know, that's what I was playing out, How I'll show you how bad I'll be. And when I was in the youth prison uh, at 14, my, I, was caught, I was in the isolation. They, I spent a lot of my time in isolation. They let me out to see the psychiatrist. See, the psychiatrist had the power, not the courts then, about when you got released. And so I had to go up and see the psychiatrist thinking that I was, well, he's going to tell me I'm getting released or he's going to tell me I'm staying here longer. But what he did tell me was, as my father dropped dead early hours in the morning and quite suddenly, and... I flipped out and the matron who ran the prison actually came in and said that it was my fault that I killed my father and told me that over and over again. So I carried that message with me till I was in my 30s that I'd killed my father. So that my journey played out in that on that violent path but being told that one I'm bad I'm no good and I killed my father so obviously because I killed my father that's how bad I was back in them days until only recently an adult was 17 so you were put in a bogger road at 17 years old it wasn't bogger road at 18 in regards to the adult prison that violence that form of violence that's quite brutal obviously someone died but that's prison prison's violent that's why I am a prison abolitionist because prisons are violent for stop and to say that you know police and prisons address crime supposed crime quote end quote is a lie crimes are myth crimes are behaviors enacted by parliament and decided at a time and 
place. And so I believe that we need to defund the police, give the funding to services in the community that need, like particularly affordable housing, get everybody out of poverty, give people a good job, give people an income that they can survive on to eat, to have a roof over their head, etc. To have this, the whether it's the drug services, the mental health services, you know, whatever services it is in the community. The police are not for that. The police actually escalate. They don't de-escalate. And the prison's the same. So prison teaches you violence. So as someone who had no experience of violence at home, I learned very quickly how to be violent because the system taught me that. The prison system taught me how to be violent. What would you tell your younger self today, Debbie, having come so far in the journey today as Debbie Kilroy, OAM, who was awarded the QUT 2020 Special Excellence Award and the QUT Faculty of Law Outstanding Alumni winner, apart from many other accolades? Well, I I wouldn't tell my young self to change anything I did because it was the powers out of our hand as a poor family that, you know, social workers and and police made decisions to intervene into our home where the only issue was me truanting from school but they took a very heavy heavy handed approach in relation to that to criminalize and imprison me so what i would tell my younger self would be to fight harder to fight the prison system even more imagining abolition a world without prisons i know this is coming up very soon let's talk about what the abolition word itself means and what that reform would be when there's a world without prisons. Sure. Well, um, I don't use abolition and reform in the same sentence because that's where people get it mixed up. People, people, a lot of people think that ab- abolition is reforming the system. You know, abolitionists aren't about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The Titanic's the problem. Ab- abolition is the destiny. Decarceration is the journey. So it's how we get there. So it would actually mean many things in many different ways. So it actually would not be just changing one system or tweaking it or doing another program. It's not what it's about. It's about the community. Our community would look very, very differently. How would our community look? How would we interact with each other without harm? How would we care for each other? How would we ensure that everyone has equal access to all resources, not some? So we would have to dismantle the racial capitalist world. That's the reality. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but it's how you can live your life so you actually don't cause harm to anybody else in your community and how you can work together to resolve conflict uh, in a way without having to call the cops and rely on prisons. Let's also talk about women violence, human trafficking, juvenile delinquency, sexual assaults, and all things bad for women continue. I see a very authentic side of you just going and saying, stop this right here, right now, and also standing up in the courts for the women 24-7. How do you think, realistically, this can be changed? It's just such a far gap. There is violence in neighborhood. We hear the diversity in Australia. There's so many diverse women coming in, assaulted, violence is there. What do you think we need to do together to change this? As I said before, we live in a racial capitalist world and so and we have structures that are violent, violent, systemic and structural violence. We also have misogynist male sexist violence against women that must end. But by over-policing and criminalizing and imprisoning people who are in relationships where there's violence is not the answer. We have to build a different community to make people accountable for their violence, no matter who it is, and actually have consequences that aren't 
about imprisonment. Prisons are violent, so it actually ensures more violence when those men get out of prison. So we have to think outside the bars and in a way to deal with that. We need to support girls and boys for that matter and those that don't identify with either genders to actually be able to resolve conflict from a young age. We actually don't know, we don't, we're not taught how to resolve conflict anymore as children. We tell children to go see the principal if they've done something supposedly wrong. We call the cops if someone's done something wrong. We have actually lost the ability of adults to actually resolve our own conflict so violence escalates because of that because we actually don't have the language to repair broken down relationships you're a brave heart you've dealt with covid-19 25 days back to back there are people in prison that were affected how do you think this should change as well yep i had covid and i tested i think 102 days positive i think it was but yes and I, there's been a call out from me and many others around not only this country but around the world to release people from prison because we know that when covid gets into prison people die and we've seen numerous people die in other countries and that's the fear in this country we do not have a death penalty but governments and corrective services are allowing people to stay in prison and at the risk of covid getting into the prisons and we already know that covid has been in the youth prison here as well as the adult system as well as down in Victoria and it's only a matter of time before someone dies we must release people from prison into the community for their safety and for everybody else's safety so no one dies no one deserves to die and you know what we are all so much more than the worst thing we've ever done in our lives and we must allow people who have been criminalized and imprisoned to transform you know it's okay to support people outside to transform and move through life and change but we actually do not give that opportunity to people who are criminalized and imprisoned we treat them as one person one time about one bad thing that they've done we actually must allow people to transform because we can transform into many amazing things we live in a world that is very diverse so so many women and however you identify as a woman that are so diverse in many different ways so we must not forget that there's more things about us that connect each other in a positive way than things that disconnect us so we must stop the focus on the negative and the disconnection and focus on the positive and the connection that we have together and then build build communities of diversity with women build strength amongst us all so that we can free her free them all now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe and stay tuned for more yarns. As you work through this Debbie, there are a lot of gaps. We always see you talking about it, the gaps with the federal government policies, the state government policies. The gender bias scenario, 25 years for Beijing to come through. How many years do you think it will take for your pitch to get through? Well, I think um it's not just my pitch. The abolitionist the you know, the abolitionist movement is worldwide and it's getting wider within many countries and more people are interested because people now that we've got covid the pandemic the individualism of racial capitalism is not working and has not worked and will not work when there's a pandemic and so we're seeing people need to rely on other people so they have to build a community together so when you have to build a community together you do things very differently and dismantle what is already established so 
because of the pandemic, it's actually spread the word or the interest, if you like, about how we can live in a very different community than the one that we live in now. So it's not just my idea. It's a massive movement internationally and it is growing and growing. And more so with the, the younger generation are very interested because they're sick of, you know, they want colonisation addressed to this country and other countries. They want racism, sexism, misogynism, you know, all those issues, homophobia, transphobia, like all the issues addressed. Young people are framing a world very different to the world that I grew up in and you know we need to look at that and about how we can develop a community as I said before that where we have new modes of safety and security that we're not relying on police and prisons. You're signing up for Indigenous rights. There are many people who follow you on that. What do you think is the most important thing in the next five years that needs to be addressed for uh, Indigenous people? Well, it's not for me to say what's best for uh, First Nations people in this country. It's for First Nations people to lead that charge and say what is in their best interests. For me as a white woman in this country, this invaded, colonised, unceded land where we have stolen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land, we must return the land to its rightful owners. What we as white fellows can do though, individually and as groups, is to address our white supremacy, our white unpack our white privilege and our white fragility. That's what we have to do over the next five years. And only then until we do that as individuals and as groups, then we will know that yeah, then things will change. Then we can walk alongside First Nations people in this country. Thank you, Debbie. 